Hey everyone, welcome back to the Spire Podcast. My name is Joel Hargarden. Let's get rolling here on January 7th, 2021. During the Civil War, there was a quote by General Ulysses S. Grant. He said that there are now but two parties, traitors and patriots. He drew a line in the sand and said that if you were not for the Union, you were a traitor. It was black and white, as simple as can be. After all of the squabbling they had and infighting between the various political class and the different parties in the country, to Grant, it was very clear at that time that there were only two. You're either with us or you're against us. And that was the definition of patriotism. Now, at that time, I'm sure the Confederacy had the opposite view. They probably viewed anybody part of the Union as a traitor, which is why you had the Civil War being fought. So it was all a matter of perspective. And I think in light of what happened yesterday at the U.S. Capitol, I think it's fair to ask the question, is there a point at which an assault on the existing government is a patriotic thing to do? We all saw yesterday what happened at the Capitol. We saw people break down fencing. We saw them scale walls. We saw them climb in through windows that were broken and march on the Capitol building. It's not a stretch at all to say that they were storming the castle. We actually saw different barricades being used as battering rams in an attempt to knock down doors. About the only thing we were missing was boiling oil being poured over the side. But this was a very serious action, something that we've never seen before. Yes, we saw a number of protests and riots. We saw cities burning across the country for the entire summer. And that was very serious. That was something we'd never seen before. But this was something else. This was, in addition to violence, this was also an assault on our nation's capital, an historic building itself, the seat of power in the United States. This wasn't a Target store being looted. This was, in fact, an assault on the government itself. There are a lot of people out there calling this a terrorist action. I don't see it as terrorism. I think it was more a protest that went violent, that was destructive, certainly one that was a fool's errand and never should have happened in the first place. But it's not like they took anybody hostage or tried to have a set of demands met in order to leave the capital. It got out of control. It became violent. These were people who felt they wanted to be heard. They felt that they're not being heard. And they foolishly went on this path of destruction in an attempt to be seen and to have their voices heard. But that's my view on it. Other people have different views. There are a lot of views out there that refer to these people as being patriots, as people who finally have had enough and are actually doing something as opposed to just complaining about it. It's all about perspective. It's all about how you view it from where you stand. But regardless of how you view it, there are four people dead now. The poor woman who died who was shot in the neck, Ashley Babbitt, she was a native of San Diego. She was a 14-year Air Force veteran. She died, and I saw the video today of it actually happening. It's very graphic. I chose not to retweet it because you shouldn't have your death shown like that across the social media. I just don't think that's right or proper. But she was attempting to climb a barricade of some kind. She was trying to either climb in through a broken window or step over something that they had put in the way to slow down the advancing protesters. And somebody in a suit, I assume some kind of law enforcement officer, Capitol Hill police, can't really be sure from the video, but he fired. He fired once and she was hit immediately and then she fell backwards and was started bleeding. She clearly bled out and within two hours she was dead. Now this didn't surprise me that much because it was a couple hours before when I was doing some live tweeting of the events that were unfolding, I did say that this needed to stop, because eventually some, someone would get shot. And that's what happened. You don't just advance deep into the U.S. Capitol building, start destroying things, in, intimidating the police, pushing them back, 
and somehow expect not to have violent resistance. Honestly, they should have been more aggressive in defending the capital than they were, but they were greatly outnumbered and didn't want to cause a scene. They were probably just hoping it would fizzle and people would just go home, but it did escalate to the point where somebody was shot. And it's difficult to say that it was unwarranted. Obviously, she wasn't posing a threat to anybody's life. Nobody was in danger by her. Yes, property was being destroyed. Yes, they were trespassing. So she didn't need to be shot from that perspective because that was an escalation of force that was unwarranted, perhaps. But at the same time, put yourself in the shoes of the law enforcement officer. Here you have an angry mob yelling and cursing. They've been already pushed deep into the Capitol building, and you have barricades in place. You're warning them not to move forward, and yet they do anyway, and then the gun goes off. Now, either you're afraid and you fire, maybe it was a misfire, maybe it was some kind of poor training that took place and he wasn't prepared for it, or was it in the back of his mind he did not want to be the guy who gave up the U.S. Capitol building to an angry mob? I mean, we don't know. Put yourself in his shoes. Also think about it if it were reversed. If the people who were shot were Black Lives Matter, the people who were shot were Antifa, if they were communists, would you be feeling a sorry for them? Would you be calling them patriots? How much of the things that we see in terms of who's right and who is wrong is based entirely upon our own beliefs and upon our own perspective? Applying a fair judgment in this case is difficult because obviously emotion gets involved. But there are a lot of people out there who are proclaiming Ashley Babbitt as having died as a patriot, part of a movement who was attempting to do the right thing, attempting to subvert an injustice that was taking place. Could she be a martyr for people going forward? And so it occurs to me that there is a fine line between traitor and patriot. It doesn't take much to become one or the other. Think about our own history in America. You had the Founding Fathers. They were citizens of England. They were loyal subjects to the king. And they decided in 1776 to declare independence, to break off from that governmental structure, to found their own nation, and they were traitors in every sense. They betrayed the crown, they betrayed all their past loyalties, and they decided that they wanted to be free men in a brand new country. Now, it wouldn't stop there, and they knew that. They knew the king wouldn't just turn around and say, well, you know what, guys, you can have it. The colonies in America are just so far away, it's really not worth the effort, so go ahead and enjoy your new nation. No, that was never how it was going to be. They were inviting challenge. They openly challenged the authority of the superpower of the day and they knew that it would lead to a bloody conflict. And a conflict did occur, and it was bloody. People were shot, people died, people died in horrific ways, and it was just a war that, like all wars, was a horrible affair to be a part of. We view them as patriots because we deem that their cause was just, that their cause was the worthier one, because they wanted freedom. They wanted individual freedom and control over their own destiny, something that had never been seen before in the world, and the action that took place by the founders through war, through the men that they killed, and ultimately the victory that they won in combat, it birthed the nation that was the greatest shining light in the history of the world. Never before has a nation been founded with those moral values as its center, as its framework. And all of the nations of the earth have been blessed because of that. But that is a result that only came into being because of an act of treason. And so we're a nation that was born from insurrection. We've also been told that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Does that mean that all insurrection that takes place, all sedition, treason, 
is in fact a patriotic thing to do by the American definition. Did the founders feel that way? Did they feel that any challenge to them after the revolution would be equally as justified? Well, the answer is, of course, no. Because when George Washington, who is considered the greatest American ever, the father of our country, became president, one of the very first actions that he did was he took the federal military and he sent it down to crush a rebellion that was taking place. In 1794, there was an uprising that took place in western Pennsylvania. It was in response to a whiskey tax that was enacted by the federal government. Now, there were years of tax collections that were taking place and became very aggressive, and the region eventually exploded into a confrontation that ended up resulting in President Washington sending in troops to stop the rebellion, because they feared it might turn into a revolution of some kind. During the American Revolution, all the states, they incurred a significant amount of debt. They spent a lot of money fighting a war. And in 1790, Alexander Hamilton pushed for the federal government to take over that debt, to basically say to the states, hey, you fought on behalf of all of our freedom, and you're very burdened with debt, let the federal government take it over. And he suggested that a tax on whiskey was used in order to prevent further financial difficulty. Now, George Washington was opposed to this idea. He didn't want to have a whiskey tax put in place. And in 1791, he actually journeyed through Virginia and Pennsylvania in order to speak with these citizens about their views. But at the time, local government officials, they met the idea of a whiskey tax with enthusiasm. Not surprisingly, that government officials would be in favor of a tax, even at the beginning of our nation. And so Washington took this assurance back to Congress, and Congress says, okay, sounds like everybody's on board, and they passed the bill. But the protests began almost immediately because they argued that it was unfair to small producers. Under the new law, large producers paid the tax annually at a rate of six cents per gallon. However, the more that they produced, the more tax breaks they got. It was incentivized to produce more. And if you're a large producer, that's a great thing. But for small producers, they were stuck paying nine cents per gallon in taxes. They didn't have the capacity to increase the level where they got greater tax breaks. Perhaps that sounds similar to what we see today with the large corporations like Amazon and Walmart consistently getting tax breaks and benefits while small producers struggle to compete. But to make things even worse, farmers became upset because only cash would be accepted for tax payment. So they couldn't incur any additional debt or get any credits from the government or potentially any kind of a payment plan like we have today. You had to have the cash ready. You had to give it to them when the tax collector showed up. So for those people who thought that a new nation founded in freedom would mean that you did not have to pay taxes and you essentially lived in an anarchist state, perhaps they were very disappointed to find out that was not the case. And in all honesty, looking back, it does sound like it was very unfair. Why should some producers have to pay a higher tax than others? Why can't it be flat? Why can't it be even and fair across the board? It does seem very unjust. Now let's not forget that this was America, and a revolution did just take place. How many of the people who were now asked to pay the tax that they felt was unfair were also part of that Revolutionary War? who already had that rebel spirit in place and ready to go. It turned out that the law was a failure almost immediately, 
because refusals to pay the taxes were as common as the intimidation against officials hired to collect them. So not only are the people refusing to pay the tax collector when the tax collector shows up, they're also threatening and intimidating the officials who are hired to collect them. So the tax collectors themselves are being put in harm's way, trying to just follow through with the law as it's written. And so inevitably, violence broke out. On September 11th, 1791, excise officer Robert Johnson was riding through his collection route in western Pennsylvania when he was surrounded by 11 men who were dressed as women. The mob stripped him naked and then tarred and feathered him before stealing his horse and abandoning him in the forest. Johnson recognized two men in the mob. He made a complaint and warrants were issued for their arrest. A cattle driver named John Connor was sent with the warrants and he suffered the same fate as Johnson. Except in addition to being stripped naked, tarred and feathered, he was also tied to a tree in the woods and it took five hours before he was found. In response, Johnson resigned, not surprisingly, because he feared further violence, because he didn't have any protection. And so incidents like this continued to escalate over the next few years. And then in 1793, citizens of western Pennsylvania gathered together to form their own assembly with three to five representatives per county. And the radical members among them were pushing for open rebellion. And there's a lot more to the story, more than a couple years pass in between this and ultimately what Washington ends up doing. But it was an escalation, it was open rebellion, and they became very violent. They were really holding true to the don't tread on me thought process that carried Americans through the rebellion in 1776. But eventually it reaches a climax, and Alexander Hamilton wants to send troops to Pennsylvania. But Washington instead opted for a peace envoy to be sent instead. But of course the peace envoy failed, and so Washington met with his cabinet officials and presented evidence of the violence to Supreme Court Justice James Wilson, who ruled that a military response was justified under the auspices of the Militia Acts of 1792. And so Washington assumed emergency power to assemble more than 12,000 men from the surrounding states and eastern Pennsylvania as a federal militia, And so George Washington, the sitting president of the United States, marches his army, like the general that he once was, to western Pennsylvania, and just by showing up, puts down the rebellion. He didn't have to fight, he didn't have to violently clash, because he came with such an overwhelming force. It was clear that he was serious, and it's clear that he would win. And so the rebellion was put down, and order was restored. And so this story is very important to us today, and it's important for a number of reasons, because it was one of the first actions that took place that actually showed federal authority. It actually showed that people didn't just have the option to obey the laws they wanted to obey, and they had to instead actually follow the laws as written because there is force behind those laws. And that's the difference between us and an anarchist state. We are not an anarchy, and we are not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic that has laws written and voted on and created by our representatives in Congress. And so it set that precedent, but it also showed us the difference between the Revolutionary War and the Whiskey Rebellion that was put down. In the Revolution, we didn't have a say. We didn't have the right to protest, to petition our government to change things that we saw as unjust. 
we weren't able to gather the support of our fellow citizens and vote in new people to act on our behalf, to act in our own interest. That wasn't available at the time. And so that was the difference. It was taxation without representation, as opposed to this, which was taxation as a result of representation. And so the line between traitors and patriots in this case is clearly drawn by those who would show loyalty to a nation, to a set of laws that is fair and just, one that allows you to vote and find common ground with people, to exercise your expression, and to work to convince other people to believe in your same cause, versus those who would rather not have that capability, versus those who would rather you live in a society that is controlled by a few elites. And so it can be said that American patriotism is defined as those who believe in individual liberty and also believe in the rule of law that results from that liberty. Now perhaps some of you are seeing our current situation in today's modern age with the current relationship between government and man as far closer to being 1776 than it was to 1794. Because you see today an elite class of politicians who seemingly rule over the people unchallenged in many cases. Certainly as a result of 2020, with the various lockdowns that are still in place, governors have assumed extreme powers that they never would have even thought to have had before. And they're able to exercise power in a way that goes unchallenged, even often without a vote. In almost every case, without a vote from the legislature, without a vote from the representatives of the people. And until that governor actually comes up for re-election himself, it seems that there's no way to stop or challenge the things that are happening. So yes, there are echoes taking place of 1776. We have a central authoritarian rather than a distributed set of power in the hands of electors and legislatures. But until the point comes where we have no other recourse, we have no other capability to petition your government or to convince your fellow citizens to make changes to your government, where the citizenry has no power, it is not the time for violent revolution. It is not the time to go out and disobey the laws of the land. Because the laws as written are there because they've been voted on and created by those who represent the people. There was an orderly, legal, and fair process by which these laws were created. The biggest problem we have today is that there are politicians who are above the law. There are politicians who can do things outside of the Constitution as it's written, outside of the Constitution of their states, and outside of the different rules written by the legislatures across the country. That's where the problem is. So I don't see how further lawlessness helps solve that problem. The people who marched on the U.S. Capitol building yesterday, they felt unheard. They felt that they didn't have any other recourse, and they were angry. They were mad. And in many cases, that anger is justified because the political class is not listening to the people in many cases. But that does not mean that there is nobody listening. And it doesn't mean you can't still work together in the confines of the system, the American system that has stood for over 200 years, to actually work and change it from within. The central problem in America today is not that politicians have deaf ears and refuse to listen to the people. The problem is is that there are too many people in this country who are okay with that. The problem is that there are way too many people in this country who are unaware of just how much liberty they've already lost. They're far more concerned with safety, security, handouts, benefits, than they are with their own freedom. And that isn't solved by marching on the U.S. Capitol and wrecking the place. All that does is it gives further power to politicians, a further reason for them to restrict rights and liberty, to crack down on those with dissenting views, because all of a sudden now it's about safety and security. 
So yes, it was absolutely a mistake to do yesterday, and the violence that resulted from it was truly abhorrent, and the lives lost is beyond tragic. So what I've just given you is the American ethical, moral reasoning for why one revolution would be okay while another revolution would not be okay. But I would be remiss in not telling you that this is not how a Christian should behave. A Christian is not concerned with revolution in a physical sense. A Christian is not involved in the wars that are fought around him. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world, and if his kingdom were of this world, the servants would fight. It would be at that point his servants would fight that he not be delivered to the Jews, not be delivered to his crucifixion. But because his kingdom was not of this world, it was not something that he called us to do. In fact, when Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus told him to put it away. He told him that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Everything that Jesus taught us had to do with turning the other cheek. It had to do with being humble, to loving your enemies, to pray for your enemies. How often do you do that? When's the last time you did that? The warfare that Christians are part of is spiritual, as we continue to refine ourselves, to work to improve ourselves with God's help, to be better servants and more humble in his sight. So the Christian is not waiting for his moment to pick up his gun and go march on Washington. But rather, he's looking to a future kingdom that will come. And as great as America is, it isn't perfect, and it never will be, because it's run by humans. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming, that Jesus will bring at his second coming, It is that country, it is that world that we are citizens of, and it's that world that we look to. And that is the one true revolution that we're going to want to be part of. So we'll keep it brief today. I think that covers everything I wanted to talk about. Certainly finishes my thoughts on the events that happened yesterday. So we'll break for now. Thanks so much for listening. May God bless.